Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Annika Moldquist. Today, we're wrapping up our Summer of Law series with a conversation with Judge Amul Fapar, who serves as a judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. When President George W. Bush nominated him in 2007 to serve on the Eastern District of Kentucky, he became the first South Asian Article III judge in American history. He was President Trump's first appellate court nominee in 2017, and before joining the bench, served as the United States Attorney for the Eastern District of Kentucky. We're here to discuss his new book, The People's Justice, Clarence Thomas, and the Constitutional Stories That Define Him. I really hope that you enjoy this discussion and find it enlightening to understand one of the men behind the recent Supreme Court decisions. So with no further ado, I hope you enjoy. Judge Lepar, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So kicking this off, uh, you know, you've written this book and you've titled The People's Justice. And there are a lot of differing views kind of from different corners about Clarence Thomas. Um, Why did you choose to focus on that specific angle? Yeah, because you often hear his critics say he favors corporations over consumers, the strong over the weak, the rich over the poor. But that's not a true. None of those critiques are true. In fact, what you'll find is originalism, the judicial philosophy he most often practices, is all about honoring the will of the people. And when the American people agreed to have a limited federal government in their constitution, they retained all of their God-given rights except those they specifically allowed the federal government to, to intrude upon, and those were minor intrusions, of course. And so I think when you think about originalism, what people most often fail to understand is at its core, it is about honoring the will of the people. And so he's the people's justice because he honors the laws they pass and the the Constitution itself. He's also the people's justice because he cares passionately about people and he never forgets there's real people in front of him in the case in front of him. In other words, unlike most of us that will talk about the legal principles involved in the cases, he never forgets the caption has real people behind it. Yeah, so I'm wondering, because it seems to me, I mean, there are two different ways of evaluating, you know, a a case, right? There's the kind of very strict adherence to the text, like an originalist or textualist approach. And then there's kind of that sort of more human element that you're talking about, where, you know, if I met this person in the street, you know, how would I judge whether or not they they should win this case? Um, And I think it's, it's easy to envision scenarios, theoretical scenarios in which those two actually like might be in conflict. Uh, How do you think about both? How do you think about, I guess, and how do you think Clarice Thomas thinks about the balance between those two ways of evaluating a case? Yeah, as I talk about in the book, Justice Thomas always favors originalism and textualism first. So he performs the, the rigorous analysis and it's hard work that goes into figuring out what the meaning of the text is. And then he applies it to the case at hand. And when he does that, that latter part, which you have to do, he never forgets to point out the human element. And so, for example, in a case about the famous football player, Warwick Dunn, and whether his mom's killer 
was mentally incompetent when it reached the Supreme Court. Uh, they found he was, and so he could get off death row. And we can go into the details of that case. It's yeah. talked about in the book exhaustively. It goes through and parallels work Dunn's fight to put his family back together as the oldest of six kids raised by a single mother who they no longer had, who was a police officer that was ambushed and killed by Mr. Brumfield, who was the killer and who got off death row. And what Justice Thomas did is he had three sections of his dissent where he went through and pointed out what, why legally the case was wrong. In other words, why he thought the majority got it wrong and why this person should not let be, be let off death row. And then he had one section where he specifically talked about the victim and worked on being an 18 year old with his mother who his mother, who he loved dearly, ambushed and killed, and how he had to pick up the pieces of five younger siblings, figure out what to do, decide if whether he should go to college at all and pursue a football career, which he did. And he graduated from Florida State, went on to the NFL, and is one of 20 running backs to have more than 10,000 yards. So here's a guy with a heart of gold and someone who took on the obligation to not only raise his siblings, but play pro football and, and provide for his family, his siblings and his family. And now he provides for single moms. And Justice Thomas took the time to point that out. Not only that, he took the time for maybe one of the first times ever, the name of the chapter is the picture, because he puts the picture of Work Dunn's mom in the appendix mm. of the Supreme Court reporter so that she is memorialized forever. The point is, is, he went through the, the meaning of the law. He went through the original meaning. He talked about habeas. He did all the legal work he had to do. But he also wanted to remind everyone when the majority was talking about how this person was mentally unfit, that this person's rampage of criminal behavior, as recounted in the book, had a real lasting impact on the victims. And we shouldn't forget there's victims in these cases, too, because often we focus solely on the criminal defendant and we forget there's victims yeah. and that should never happen and justice thomas wanted to remind the reader that there were victims in this case and so there's one scenario in other scenario and we can talk about it and i don't want to go on and on is um we can talk about how he when he goes through originalist principles and he always does that. And sometimes the less sympathetic party wins. And I point that out in the introduction. I don't make any bones about it. Justice Scalia said that if you always like the result you're reaching, you're not being a judge, you're being a politician. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important to remember for judges. Yeah, I mean, I think the the elephant in the room uh, in your book came up a lot in that answer is the word dissent. I mean, you're talking about a lot of cases uh, where Justice Thomas did I mean, didn't win the argument to speak very, you know, kind of colloquially about it, right? Where where the other justices, even sometimes the other conservative justices, decide one way and he decides another way. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about not not to be too put too fine a point on it, but I mean, what what kind of is the utility um for the law? I mean, is it just a matter of you know, it's just sort of on the public record that that he kind of was right or that he felt one way about something. Um, and now we have that forever. Or does this like really have an impact on the law broadly? No, what I wanted to do, and maybe let's just take a step back and talk about why I wrote the book. And I think it'll answer yeah. that exact question, which is, 
I'm an originalist as a judge. I, I, in fact, I came to Princeton and talked about my view of originalism. And I wanted to capture, originally the book started as originalism for lay people. Right. And, then, and then what I realized is I want to make a book that's readable, that's enjoyable, that teaches the reader originalism without going through the technical jargon and trying to walk them through in a boring fashion. And so yeah. what I realized is Justice Thomas, after Justice Scalia sadly passed, is the ultimate originalist now. No one denies that he is one of the leading originalists, if not ever, at least right now living and probably ever. The best way to capture a person's originalism, in other words, the way they practice it, is in their solo writings or their writings that they write and joined by others, but not majorities. Why? As judges, when we write majority opinions, we have to make concessions. Yeah. So it doesn't necessarily reflect 100% the way we would have done it if we were writing alone. Whereas when Justice Thomas writes dissents or concurrences or separate writings, he is writing for himself first and foremost. And he, if other people decide to join it, they join it. But he that rep represents his true views. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, the Kelo case, which starts uh, the book and talks about eminent domain. And eminent domain is codified in the Fifth Amendment. And it says that the government may take your property for public use with just compensation, the key words being public use. So what that means, and your listeners will understand this, is if they want to expand the road in front of your house a little bit, they may take the front sliver and they'll pay you for it. Or if they want to put a sidewalk in, they may take the front portion of your yard and they'll pay you for it. And it's for the public use, meaning the public will use that property. The Kilo case is a case where Suzette Kilo uh, bought a, her dream home. It was a in a rundown. It was in a beautiful blue collar neighborhood, but it was a rundown home. She put blood, sweat, and tears. Got a second job, rehabbed the house. It became her dream house. And then a partnership between Pfizer Corporation, who your listeners may have heard of, and uh, the city of New London and the state of Connecticut partnered to take it from her because Pfizer wanted to locate in New London, or New London had recruited them, to be fair, to come to New London and take over an old mill site. But they didn't just want an old mill site. They wanted an old mill site for their plant, for their what they believed was going to be their wonder drug, Viagra. And a they wanted an upscale mall, an upscale a health club, nice restaurants, and an upscale condo building for executives and others to live in. And so they decided they were going to team up and through eminent domain, take this blue collar neighborhood. And just to fast forward, they, Suzette Kilo decides to fight it all the way, her and her neighbors fight it all the way to the Supreme Court, including the dairies who had lived there a hundred years. Their family had been there a hundred years. Every time someone got married, they put the down payment on a house in the neighborhood. They loved it so much. And they lost at the Supreme Court. And Justice O'Connor wrote the majority dissent for four justices, for her Chief Justice Rehnquist, Justice Scalia, and Justice Thomas. But then Justice Thomas wrote alone. Mm. And he wrote alone because in a previous case, public use had been converted to public purpose. And he wanted to point out how this was used, this change in the meaning, the change in the words of the Constitution had been used to trample on poor and often minority neighborhoods. And his 
dissent was pretty exhaustive and pretty compelling. And I leave the book with that chapter because it's it's going to blow the reader's mind when they read it. Yeah. I mean, I again, like, I kind of wonder, maybe this is a sort of silly basic question about the Supreme Court, but I actually think it is something that a lot of people don't quite understand or aren't quite clear on. I mean, you know, what's the point? In the world of politics, it can be so risky to actually just put your opinion completely on the table and say, this is 100% my opinion. No one else has signed on to it. I'm not backing down on it. Right. I mean, what does that from from Judge Thomas's perspective, you know, writing and as as you observe in the book, he writes a lot of dissents and is quite, quite willing to you know disagree uh, with with the court broadly. What what from his perspective does that achieve and does that get across? Yeah, that's a great question. So he wants to lay down a marker mm-hmm. and he wants to say, look, this is a problem. We've gotten away. I'm going to use Kilo again. We've gotten away from the words public use and changed it into public purpose so much so that we're now taking it for, and he uses the word something like something that is suspiciously agreeable to the Pfizer Corporation. (laughs) And so it's not even a public use anymore. We've gotten so far away. And what he points out, for example, in the case they changed it from public use to public purpose, the 97% of the people they displaced were Black. Yeah. No one talks about that except Justice Thomas. Remember how in my introduction, I talk about how they call him a traitor to his race and an Uncle Tom. This book proves the opposite is true. If your reader reads this book when, or your listener reads this book, then when they're done, they're going to see the opposite is true. So what is Justice Thomas doing? That's the ultimate question. He's laying down a marker. He's saying, I did the originalist research. Here's all the research. You don't have to do it going forward. Lawyers, I've helped you out. Now come back to the court and make the right argument because here's your ammunition and in and then maybe I can convince some of my colleagues to change their mind. And we know historically that Justice Thomas has changed people's minds. Justice Scalia himself said the first year on the court, everyone thought, again, condescendingly, that Justice Thomas was Justice Scalia's clone. And Justice Scalia said everyone got it backwards. Three opinions started out as solo dissents. His first year on the court, he was willing to stand alone and say, this is wrong. And eventually they won people over. Mm -hmm. And some of those early dissents are now majorities. And what I mean by that is slowly but surely, justices have seen and come over to that side. So Justice Thomas is laying down a marker and saying, this is wrong. It has unintended consequences that you aren't even aware of, court. If you care about the consequences, I'm going to tell you about them. If you care about the original meaning, I'm going to tell you about it. Wow, that's really phenomenal. And I I didn't know that actually at the end of, you know, about Justice Scalia saying that about Clarence Thomas. That's really amazing. Um, I mean, let's talk a little bit. I mean, you kind of mentioned that uh, Justice Thomas as a black man and as a black justice, you know, played a role in his decision to dissent in that case. Um, and I mean, that is kind of <laughs> one of those things that's sort of inconvenient on the political left that gets like a lot of press. You know, do we consider Clarence Thomas black? It kind of in the same whatever do we consider Ben Carson black et cetera et cetera talk a little bit more about um how being you know being a black man and how his kind of personal background has influenced him in the court yeah so 
Justice Thomas grew up in Georgia. And when people say dirt poor, that's what Justice Thomas was, so much so that he slept on a dirt floor growing up. And I, I talk about this in the introduction. His mom was making $10 a week. She couldn't afford to raise a young Clarence Thomas and his brother. So she took them to their grandfather. And their grandfather assumed the responsibility to raise the two boys. And when he did, he did so with an iron fist. Mm. There was love, but there was a lot of discipline. And Justice Thomas talks about this in his great book, My Grandfather's Son. And he also talks about how his grandfather understood, and you'll see this, this line of thinking from his grandfather is then traced into the book and into the cases that A, education means emancipation. In other words, his grandfather understood that the way for Clarence Thomas and his brother to succeed was through a good education. So he, he, even though he was really poor, he saved up all his money to send the two boys to Catholic schools. And Justice Thomas talks about how those nuns from kindergarten through eighth grade impacted him and what an impact they had on him. And he understood that. And then the second thing, and there's three things his grandfather did that are critical to who Justice Thomas is today. The second, at least in my mind, Justice Thomas may tell you there's 20, but I've picked out three. <laughs> the second is that whenever Justice Thomas or his brother said, I can't do something, his grandfather said, old man can't is dead. You know how I know? I helped bury him. <laughs> and so there was no can't in their household. And the third thing he did is he taught him to think for himself. And I'm going to read a quote from Justice Thomas, if I may, where um, he said that he learned from his grandfather, and I'm quoting now, to assert my right to think for myself, to refuse to have my ideas assigned to me as though I was an intellectual slave because I am black, to state that I'm a man free to think for myself and do as I please and to assert that I am a judge and I will not be consigned to the unquestioned opinions of others. In other words, what he's saying there is his grandfather gave him the strength to always think and do the right thing in his own mind. Now think about this. Justice Thomas rose from these circumstances to ultimately get on the highest court in the land. And he took those values with him. He understood how important a young educa education was at the kindergarten through eighth grade level. He understood that when you put your mind to it, there's nothing you can't accomplish in the greatest country in the world, being the United States of America. And he understood that he had a right to think for himself and he didn't have to listen to others. He would always do what he believed was right, no matter the consequences. And the final thing that doesn't necessarily come from his grandfather, I'm sure he would trace it there, is a passionate love for our country and an appreciation that he is where he is because of the good graces of the American people. What does that lead you to do? Because I understand that as well, being an immigrant's child, mm. that you're where you are because of the good grace of the American people. So you should respect their words. You should respect the laws they pass. You should respect the Constitution. And that's what originalism and textualism was all about. Mm. Yeah, and I, I love that emphasis. Um, Clarence Thomas, you know, his willingness to really be an individual and, and to think for himself because of his background. I think that's just really something that 
you know, when you're thinking about things that you should emulate about a person, you know, that willingness to think for yourself is so important. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that kind of, you know, we've talked about the personal background element of that, but talk about that, you know, within the court. I mean, you've said Justice Thomas is, he's not the only conservative on the court, but you've described him as, you know, the preeminent originalist on the court. I mean, what is it that makes kind of his jurisprudence and him specifically so different? I mean, even from the other conservatives on the court. Well, I think first and foremost, to be fair to the others on the court, he's been there a lot longer. And so he's had the time to build up his jurisprudence in a way some of the other originalists haven't. There are now a a large number of originalists on the court. And I think the reality is, is Justice Thomas has had you know, many more years than most of them to build up that originalist jurisprudence. And remember, Justice Scalia once was the ultimate originalist, I think. And then Justice Thomas assumed that mantle when Justice Scalia passed, although they were slightly different in kind. Um, And this book points out some chapters where they diverged and your listeners will get a chance when they hopefully read the book to see where they diverged. But I think the reason you know, it comes back to who he is and everyone gets there a different way. And one thing I noticed in my background and his is we have kind of similar backgrounds in that, although very different in that my dad came here with a one-way ticket and a $5 bill, grew up like Justice Thomas, very, very poor, the child of a single mother because his dad passed away when he was two in India. So uh, English was a second language. His mom gave him a one-way ticket to get him out of really poor circumstances and a $5 bill and said, make something of yourself and sent him to America where he, he through hard work, made something of himself. And whenever we came home and complained to our parents, my sister and I, about something, they said, this is the greatest country in the world. If you can't accomplish it here, you can't accomplish it anywhere. Mm-hmm. Similar message ironically similar result right i'm an originalist and a textualist molded hopefully although i can never claim this um, but molded in a way of justice thomas and trying to understand and do the hard work to figure out the original meaning so i think the reality is my answer to your ultimate question is originalism is really hard I always tell my clerks, if I was if I was just picking results, you could go home at three every day because I could come in. You could tell me the case. I could tell you the result. Instead, we spend a lot of time trying to figure it out and doing the hard work of figuring out the meaning. And I think the longer you do it, hopefully for me and my clerks, the better you get at it. And I think Justice Thomas, one of the advantages he has over the rest of us is he's just been doing it for so long. And he's so principled at it. And he's so good at it that if you read his opinions, you really walk away with, boy, this was a lot of work went into this. The other beauty of originalism is you can check our work because we have to cite all our sources. You have such a great quote um, about this in your book. Um, You say, it makes sense that a justice who would rather spend his time in a Walmart parking lot than at a cocktail party is an originalist. I think that's from the conclusion of the book. I mean, we've kind of talked about, you know, the intellectual advantages of originalism, but talk to me, like unpack that for me a little bit, uh, because I think you hear that quote out of context and you're like, wait a minute, that's not obviously true to, you know, it's not, doesn't strike you as immediately that's true, you know? Yeah, so my view of why that quote 
is so important or why that sentence, I guess I wrote it, so it's not a quote, but <laughs> why, you're quoting it. Why, why that sentence is so important is it really captures the heart of originalism. Mm -hmm. So the way I explain originalism to lay people, and I know your audience may be more sophisticated than the typical audience, but let me, let me take a stab at it and just walk back for a second to that and then walk forward from it. Is the American people were given God-given rights. And when they gave up those rights in the document, they did so with written words, which was unique at the time. People have to remember in a lot of places, they had oral constitutions and other things, not written. Mm -hmm. And when they, so they give it up with a written word. And our job is to interpret those words. And when people say, well, wait a minute, why are you doing that? Because the constitution is like a contract. It's a contract between the American people and their government saying, you government can have these powers but we retain the rest. And why is that important? Well, when when I was nominated to the Sixth Circuit, they ran some articles saying I was an originalist. My neighbor came down and he said, oh my gosh, he's one of my best friends. And he said, I can't believe you're an, one of those, an originalist. And I said, I said to him, Mike, um, you're a businessman. Yeah. You and another person make a contract. You put down your understanding of the contract in writing. Is it my job to interpret that and figure out what you meant? Or is it my job to tell you what I think is best for you? Mm. And he said, of course, it's to interpret what we meant. I said, well, you now, too, are an originalist. And so what does that mean? How does that answer your question? The way it answers your question is, if the document doesn't speak to it, mm. there's two ways a judge can approach it. One, they can insert their own views. Or two, they can leave it to the American people. An originalist believes that it should go to the American people. Justice Scalia sometimes jokingly said that if it's not in the document, I would ha rather have nine people randomly chosen out of the phone book decide the pressing issues of today than the nine people in this building. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important to think about. He's not saying, of course, nine people. He's saying he'd rather have the American people. And, you know, sometimes say, well, we need these rights. Well, Title VII is not in the Constitution. Mm. Yet the American people passed it. The Civil Rights Act is not in the Constitution. Yet the American people passed it. And so the point is, is that there are many ways you don't have to amend the Constitution to do things. You can also pass them at the city level and pass them at the state level. What else does that produce? If everyone's not going to court and suing each other to get, quote unquote, my rights, what's the other alternative? It's to work with your neighbor, to mm -hmm. reach compromise. And we'll get away from all this vitriol if we have to work together to accomplish a common goal. And that we're not doing enough of because we've gotten away from the original meaning and the courts are solving all the problems of the day versus leaving it to democracy. You know, it's interesting uh, because this interview is following up pretty directly on interviews that I've done with John Yu and Hadley Arcus, um, who I talked with both of them about this exact thing. And they have, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, kind of different views about it. John Yu, you know, we discussed, you know, he thinks specifically talking about the Dobbs decision, which was kind of, I think right now, one of the infraction points for this, how much should the court do versus how much should be left for the people. John Yu was kind of more on the side of, oh, we should, you know, leave some of this to the legislatures or to constitutional amendments and things like that, whereas Hadley Arcus has more of a 
the decision should be informed by natural law, which means, you know, weighing in um, much more firmly than Dobbs, in fact, did um, on the issue of abortion in the states. And, you know, Clarence Thomas wrote um, a concurrence that seems to me to be much more kind of in the Hadley Arcus vein um, than what you're describing. Um, so I don't have a response. And here's why. And I'll <laughs> leave it to the two of them to debate it is I don't think yeah. I should weigh in on issues that could come before us. And oh, those sorry. Yeah. No, that's okay. It's it's a potential issue that could come before us. I think at its core, though, as, as we walk back to what the book's about, the book um, talks about how your obligation as a judge is to interpret the document against the backdrop of whatever was there. And Justice Thomas talked about this at his confirmation hearings, and maybe he indicated that there, but I don't think he's saying he would do that. He, what he's saying is, if he's flagging an issue, he, sometimes he'll flag an issue, but he won't flesh it out in his mind because he wants to see it briefed. He mm. wants to see the source material, and then he's going to make the decision because you can't, you got to do the work. And sometimes when he flags things, he's flagging them to say, okay, I recognize this is coming down the road. I'm not prejudging it. I'm going to decide it when it's in front of me and when all the materials in front of me. He still does that. Sometimes there'll be cases in front of him where he'll say, okay, I agree with the majority, but by the way, this issue wasn't raised. And if they raised this issue, I would decide it. You've mentioned kind of how long Justice Thomas has been on the court. And one of the things that I find really interesting, I mean, your book kind of jumps around a little bit in time. Um, but just like over the course of how long he's been on the court, the composition of the court has changed so drastically. I mean, candidly, it's changed so drastically just like in the last five years. Justice Thomas has seen so many different sometimes he's been in the majority on the court, sometimes in the minority. I mean, talk a little bit about how that has shifted his influence over time and how you see that kind of developing going forward. I think his consistency and the fact that what I always say is, you can criticize Justice Thomas all you want, but go look. Is he consistent? Does yeah. he adhere to the original meaning? Does he always, people say, oh, he always rules for the corporation. This book proves the opposite is true. Yeah. They say he always rules for the big guy. This proves the opposite is true. It, what he always does is follow the original meaning. And I think his impact has been his consistency. In other words, mm -hmm. he just keeps beating along, right? You, you remember... Um, it was, uh, you have this race, right? Between the fast person and the turtle and uh, they're racing and the turtle's just kind of chugging along. And Justice Thomas is just kind of chugging along, laying out his work and saying, come join me. And, you know, if you meet Justice Thomas, you'll know he's never going to be condescending. He's never going to say, try to pressure anyone. He's just laying out his work and saying, I think I'm right. Maybe you'll join me someday. And you've slowly seen that influence. And what's happened as a result of Justice Scalia, Ed Meese, Robert Bork, and now Clarence Thomas is originalism has grown to the point where really what's out there is originalism and its critics. And yeah. Justice Scalia always pointed this out. You want another philosophy? Bring a philosophy and let's talk about it. But I think it's really important that we go back. So what I believe the oath is, the oath is the oath that those who govern us must take, so me included, and we take it to this constitution. What does that mean? The words and concepts in the document. Okay, so that we interpret as originalism. 
no one has brought, we've, we've had a bunch of other philosophies, right? But none of them have lasted that long. In other words, they throw one up, originalism knocks it down, and they move on to the next one. Where we've got now is originalism and its critics. And that's a tribute to people like Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas and Ed Meese and Robert Bork and the others who really championed originalism from early on when there were, as Justice Scalia said, when he used to say he's an originalist, everyone would run from the room like he's a bear. <laughs> and today, you'll see many judges on the courts claim the mantle of originalism. You'll see, even in the academies, what's debated most often mm. is originalism. And I sort of wonder, because you know, even amongst originalists, Clarence Thomas has his colloquial reputation is of being like the most conservative justice on the court. I mean, how does that interact? Um, you know, as as we've kind of discussed, he's so willing to kind of go out on a limb and go out on his own and, and you know, write the dissent or write the concurrence. Um, but you also point to instances where sometimes he's not only willing to do that, but willing to do that against the, you know, the other conservative justices. I mean, talk a little bit about that. In In what ways is Clarence Thomas kind of more conservative than the other justices? And what are some instances where maybe he made a decision that was kind of surprising? Well, here's why conservative's a bad label for judges and originalists yeah. is a good one. If you if you claim the mantle of originalism. Right. Is because if you look at chapter four, where Angel Raish was fighting to keep government out of her medical care, right? And she wanted to, under California law, she could smoke at the time medical marijuana. Who stood up for her? Mm. Clarence Thomas. Chief Justice Rehnquist and Sandra Day O'Connor. Yeah. Right. So now, as one host asked me, you wouldn't you would be shocked to see she she coined it, you know, the conservatives, quote unquote, standing up for hippie smoking marijuana. Now, Angel's not a hippie smoking marijuana, but she was just having fun. Right. The host was having fun. It was awesome. She's a friend of mine. Um, but the point being is. If you go out in the American public and say, who stood up? When you read that chapter, I gave it to a friend of mine who's mm. pretty liberal, and he read it. He's not a lawyer. He read it, and then he, he when he got done with the chapter, this was when I was writing the book, I, I wanted to get his take on it. And he said, oh, my gosh, I would have thought Ginsburg and the others would be on one side, and Justice Thomas would be writing the majority saying, no, you can't do this. So, yeah. or when you think of the Pfizer Corporation, right? If you go out and ask, if you and I go on the streets today and we say, okay, who's going to rule in front favor? Of, here's this factual scenario. Who on the court's going to rule in favor of Suzette Kilo? And who's going to rule in favor of the Pfizer Corporation? What are most people, everyone's going to tell Clarence Thomas in favor of Pfizer Corporation. Yet the opposite's true. The punitive damage case in the book, I don't want to give it away because I want uh, your <laughs> listeners to be surprised because I talk a lot about it. Yeah. But um, Justice Thomas is often ruling in a way that is inconsistent with the conservative quote unquote label. In other words, being pro-corporation, which they say is conservative. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's an unfair these days um, description of what a conservative is. But, it, you know. Let me give you another example, because Justice Scalia used it, which is Justice Scalia said, most people would say I'm pro-law enforcement. So why do I rule in favor of criminal defendants so often when the Constitution compels it? 
It's because I'm an originalist. And if I always, as I mentioned before, like the results I reach, I'm not being a judge. I have to follow the meaning of the document. And so I think it's important that we think about Justice Thomas not as a quote-unquote conservative, but yeah. as a quote-unquote uh, originalist. Now, if you want to put populist on that, I think there is a level of populism to his originalism, and that's why he's the people's justice, right? Yeah. He never forgets the real people. And that's, I mean, if, if your listeners leave with anything, I want them to leave with the understanding that when they read this book, they will judge for themselves. The beauty of the book is in the introduction and conclusion, I tell the listener what I, or the reader what I think. That's it. The rest of it is the stories of the cases and the stories, they get to walk out alongside the litigant and live the case. Mm. And they get to see what the results are. And by walking alongside of the litigant, they get a real feel for what this is like in the captivating stories the book captures. And that allows them to see that A, Justice Thomas's originalism is uncompromising. He never compromises on it. And B, that he genuinely cares about the people. Yeah, I, I can't resist. I mean, the word populism means so many things to different people, and it, it can be quite... See, just like conservative. <laughs> I, I, yeah, actually, yeah, good point. Good parallel, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it can be such a charged word, like in certain circumstances. Uh, unpack for me a little bit why you use that word for, for Clarence Thomas and his jurisprudence. Yeah, and I think it's, I don't think he would use that word just to be fair. The reason I'm using it is, and that's a fair, it's a great point you make. I think of populism as caring about what the ordinary person, in other words, not the elites, just as Thomas calls them in, his, in the, the book, the cognoscenti, mm -hmm. um, not what they think, uh, he calls it the people's constitution when he talks about it. Right. And it's it's wonderful if you think about it, but there's a, there's a level of, I think of populism as kind of everyday American, mm. right? What is the populace want? And it's not majority. It's what did they retain? What rights do we ha have enshrined? And otherwise I'm going to trust them. I'm going to trust the populace. Hmm. And that's where it is for me. But maybe I'm thinking about it wrong and it's an unfair label to put on him. That's why I love the label originalist because it's safe. <laughs> I know we keep circling back to that to there, which yeah. is yeah, a good place to be at. Um, you know, I'm wondering, we're sort we're sort of reaching the end of our time here. Um, and I'm wondering, I mean, You've written this great this book, which is a great honor to Clarence Thomas. Um, why was it so important? I mean, to you, either personally or professionally, to honor Clarence Thomas in this way. I mean, how would you say that he's influenced you, either again, either personally or professionally? Well, I think he's influenced me in a lot of ways. He's given me the courage to be an originalist, no matter what. Like, get the right answer and don't worry about it. Do the right thing 100% of the time. There's no compromise in doing the right thing. The The other thing, though, that I think is really important and mattered to me is as an originalist, the best way to teach people what originalism's real impact is, mm. is through Justice Thomas. Because I think 
everyone thinks of original when they think of originalism these days they think of clarence thomas mm. and so it says okay if that's who you're going to think of let's look at what clarence thomas's america would look like and which is an originalist america and this book does it the reader will walk away with an understanding here's the other thing it does that surprised even me mm. is it shows that he is an originalist first and foremost he cares about people second but he has a strong black voice yeah and i think that's been lost in the book if you read the entire book you will walk away understanding that and then hopefully the final thing because i think the book is readable mm is I hope people will read it and then give it to a critic who's a friend of theirs, right? Everyone's got a friend that's a critic of Justice Thomas. If you're American, you do. <laughs> and so give it to them. Let them read it or buy them a copy or do it in a book club and then talk about it. Because even the critics will walk away with a different view of Justice Thomas than that which they came with to this book and most americans are open-minded about it i think we you know hear all the time the critiques and the responses and what i'm saying is read the cases yeah. i put them in readable form they're no more in legalese there's no legalese in this book hmm. read the book and give it to a critic and then have that discussion because i think that's how we change minds and hearts one person at a time well, that is a really stirring note to end on. And thank you so much for your time, Judge Thapar. Um, and the link to your book is in the show notes. I hope everyone will go out and give it give it a read. Thank you very much. Well, there you have it, Madisonians. Judge Amul Thapar on Clarence Thomas, The People's Justice. You can find the new book in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please do follow the Madison program. You can go to our website, jmp.princeton.edu. You can also find us on Twitter at Madison Program, as well as on Instagram and Facebook. All of our old recorded lectures, including one with Judge the Par that we hosted back in the fall. So please do check that out. And of course, we really appreciate any ratings and reviews. Please let us know how we're doing. It really makes a big difference to us. There you have it, wrapping up the Summer of Law series. And hope to see you next time here on Madison's Notes.